If you live long enough, if you live long enough, chances are pretty good you're going to be betrayed by someone. Somebody that you thought you could count on is going to take a secret that you told them in private and is going to share it with somebody else. Or they're going to just outright stab you in the back. When that broken trust comes at the hand of a friend or a spouse or a co-worker or even a boss that you trust, it's like a sucker punch. It always comes as a surprise. When it happens, there is usually this strong flood of emotions inside of us. And usually at the top of the list is hatred. We may give it a lot of other names, but if we're really honest, its true name is hatred. It's a natural human response to betrayal. And the question for us as we try to follow Jesus' teaching is what do we do when somebody intentionally hurts us and we just can't seem to forgive them? Now, maybe you've convinced yourself as time goes by that you can manage the hurt without offering forgiveness. In fact, you may even tell yourself that you can hardly remember the pain. But unfortunately, the pains that we ignore are often the most dangerous pains of all. They still continue to hurt. We find a way to stuff them into the recesses of our brain. But they always come back. They come back with clever disguises sometimes. But they always come back. Which is why Jesus taught that forgiveness is about our own freedom more than it is about the initial pain of betrayal. Have you ever been around somebody who has been wronged, either in business or in a personal relationship, and they're just hanging on to that? You know, they just can't seem to let it go. If they hang on to their anger long enough over time, it turns into bitterness. And it can consume them doesn't matter what the conversation is about, it always seems to turn back around to that wrong that was done to them. When we find ourselves in that zone, we just want to see the person who wronged us hurt. We want to see them hurt the same way that they hurt us. We get to the point where we just dream about evening the score. Now, you may be completely justified about that bitterness you hang on to. You may have every right not to forgive certain people in your life. But we need to know that eventually, bitterness contaminates everything. It soon spreads into every relationship, not just that relationship where we were hurt. Left unchecked, it ruins everything that's important to us, which is sometimes why it's important that we don't forgive somebody just for their sake. We do it for our own freedom. One day Jesus was making the point about forgiveness as he was teaching. 
and he told a story. He often did that when he wanted to make his point. He just told a story. And this particular one was about a king who was settling a debt with his servants in Luke 18. He says, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring all of his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. So in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Let's put it in perspective. This is an ordinary servant of the king, nobody special. Could have been anyone, from a court official to a tax collector himself. And this was an annual process that every king, every ruling official did with all of their servants. They brought them in. They brought all of their accounts current. What was unusual was the amount that this dude owed. It was absurd. In the original Greek language, they would have weighed it out in silver. This guy would have owed 375 tons of silver. If you looked at the specific time period in which Jesus taught this parable, the annual tax debt of Judea and Samaria, those two nations put together, the amount this guy owed would have been 16 times the annual tax debt of those two nations. In fact, the amount he owed was more than all the cash of those two nations that they had in circulation combined. It was an absurd amount this servant owed. So obviously, he couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything that he owned in order to pay his debt. The servant was foolish to get into the debt in the first place. That's clear. Now it was going to cost him his freedom and his life. The most expensive slave on record from that period in Israel's history that was ever sold in Jesus' day went for around $20,000. That wasn't common. That was just the most expensive slave ever sold. This dude, by our dollars today, if you took the value of silver, put it against 200, or 375 tons, this dude owes $236,000,000 to the king. What they would get for selling him at $20,000 as a percentage is like not much. Not even going to make a dent in what he owes. By estimates, it would take he and his family 1,500 years for he and his extended family to pay off a debt that he's incurred. Imagine for a moment, you're standing there, you realize all this, Just imagine the fear, the utter sense of hopelessness you would have standing in front of the king, realizing the debt that you owe. Realizing his hopeless state, the man falls down in front of his master and he begs him, please, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all back. It's kind of a foolish statement. He's just pleading for his life. And for some reason, the story turns. The master's filled with pity for the servant. He releases him, and he forgives his debt. For a reason that nobody in the audience understands, we don't understand, the master says, you're not going to be a slave. You're not going to lose your family. You're set free. 
understand when the owner forgives the debt, it doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just magically go away. The owner himself absorbs it. He takes a loss on his ledger sheet. It costs him the hundreds of millions of dollars when he forgives the servant. That's a huge debt to be forgiven. Now, obviously, it isn't just a story. Jesus is using hyperbole to illustrate God's forgiveness. The master in the story, of course, represents God. The servant represents you and me. And Jesus says that we have accumulated a moral debt before God. We've been adding to it for years. Every time we're less than loving to another person. Every time we have a lustful thought or a judgmental attitude. Every time we gossip. Every time we sin, we add rapidly to the mounting moral debt that we have before God. Jesus said, at some point, God looks at us, looks at you and me. He's moved with compassion. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross. A cross that by all rights, you and I should have died on to pay our debt because of our sinfulness. The Bible says that on that cross, Jesus paid our debt and absorbed the loss so that we could be free. And like the servant in the story, the grace that God showed to us was shamelessly indulgent. The servant owes his life, his freedom, his family, his possessions, everything to the grace of his master. He doesn't have to repay a cent. But the point of the story isn't about the grace that's extended to him. The point is, what does he do after he receives grace? How's this guy going to respond? What's his next step? So Jesus continues, when the man left the king, he went to, to find, went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. No big deal, right? You just won the Powerball. You run into a friend who owes you for a parking ticket. His debt is equal to a hundred days wages. You've just been forgiven 1,500 years wages. What's your play? The guy's response is shocking. He grabs his fellow servant by the throat and demands instant payment. His fellow servant falls down before him and begs for a little more time. Be patient with me. I'll repay it, he pleads. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? But his creditor wouldn't wait. He has the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Same guy that was just forgiven, much more, finds a friend and refuses to forgive. He says, I'm not going to make the same mistake my master made with me. I'm not going to get stuck with this loss on my ledger sheet. And he doesn't refuse, and he refuses to forgive the debt. He makes the guy pay. The forgiven servant fails to embrace the core principle of grace that free people, free people. It's not just a good idea, it's not just a catchy phrase. It's what God expects of us once we've experienced His grace that we will show the same shamelessly indulgent grace to everyone around us. Listen to the rest of the story. What happens is that the other servants saw what happened and they were, ex- they were extremely upset. They went to the king, told him everything that happened. The king calls that first servant back in front of him. 
and says, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have shown mercy on your fellow servant just like I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent this man to prison to be tortured until he had paid the entire debt. Jesus sums up the whole story with this sentence. That's why, I'm sorry, that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. Not grudgingly. Not because you have to. From the heart. God expects people who've experienced His grace to extend it to others. To be lavish with forgiveness. It's not an isolated teaching of Jesus. It's not a a single instance in Scripture that we can easily explain away. It's taught all through the Scriptures over and over again. In Matthew 6, Jesus is really blunt with it when He says, if you forgive people who sin against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you refuse to forgive others, your Father won't forgive your sins. Here's the truth. Authentic forgiveness is never cheap. When we get hurt, we really want the other person to hurt the same way we hurt. We want them to know the pain they've inflicted on us. We want them to pay. I know what that feels like. So do you. In essence, they've run up a moral debt with us, and we know that cost down to the penny. We're thinking, if I forgive them, I know what that means. I'm going to have to absorb the cost. And the biggest cost is for them to not hurt in return, for me to not get even, to let go of any chance of seeing the pain in their eyes. Understanding how much God has forgiven us is the only way we'll ever get to the point where we can forgive others freely, fully, when they hurt us. And it's not easy. I'm not saying it is. But once we understand how deeply we've wronged God, once we understand that we are messed up people, who've sinned against him our entire life, and yet he's forgiven everything because of Jesus, it compels us to forgive others in return. We get hung up on this thing about forgiving other people generally for one of three reasons. The first hurdle is this idea that forgiving people means that I'm condoning what they did wrong to me. Forgiveness isn't the same thing as excusing somebody's behavior. It doesn't mean that we're going to tolerate injustice in the world around us, even when it's been done to us. Forgiveness is the opposite of excusing what someone did. Forgiveness says, we both know that what you did was wrong. There is no excuse for it. But since God's forgiven me, I'm choosing to forgive you. Because forgiveness deals honestly with sin, it brings freedom that no amount of excusing or condoning ever could hope to provide. So we're not condoning the wrong. Second hurdle is the idea that forgiving doesn't mean you always reconcile with the other person. Sometimes you just can't repair 
the broken relationship. Paul said, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. How did Paul start that sentence? If it's possible. Meaning, sometimes it's just not possible to live at peace with somebody. Got anybody like that in your life? Not possible to live at peace with them? This is not a good time to look right at them in the message. (laughs) There are some people in our lives it's just not possible to live at peace with. That person may not be willing to acknowledge their part in the wrong. They may not be willing to change. And if that's true, you may not be able to reconcile, but you can still choose to forgive them. You can't build a relationship that's safe unless it's built on truth. And without truth, you can't trust someone. And without trust, you can't have a relationship. The third hurdle that people sometimes have in forgiving is this idea that forgiving and forgetting are the same thing, and they're not. In fact, we need to forgive precisely because we can't forget. Forgetting is a passive process where what was done to us, what we experienced, fades from our memory with the passing of time. It's like there's this triangle in our head that spins. It has these sharp edges on it. Over time, the edges get worn down, and they're not as sharp, and they don't hurt as much. It's not something we can control. Forgiving is an active process. It involves a conscious choice and deliberate, it's a deliberate course of action. Isaiah tells us that God remembers our sins no more. He's not saying God can't remember our sins, you know, like because he's so old, he just can't remember. He's saying God's not willing to remember our sins. When God forgives us, He chooses not to mention your sins to you ever again. He chooses not to tell you about the things that you've done wrong in your past. He chooses not to think about your sins ever again. That's choosing to forget. Similarly, when we forgive, we have to draw on God's grace and consciously decide not to dwell on, not to incessantly talk about the wrong that's been done to us or how people have hurt us. And that's going to take a lot of effort, especially when the offense is still really fresh in our minds. Again, forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget, you excuse, you tolerate, you overlook what has been done. Rather, it means that you choose the way of love over the hate that you can build in your heart. That you let go of your right to hurt somebody back. Forgiving means knowing full well that the offense was inappropriate, improper, or out and out wrong. But you just decide to relinquish your feelings of being entitled to make the guilty person hurt or pay. Forgiveness is me giving up my right to hurt you the way you hurt me. And instead, I make a conscious choice to feel you from the 
to free you from the pain I feel inside. While hurt people will hurt people in this world, God calls for free people to free people from the pain of this world. Some of you may be carrying a pain of unforgiveness around this morning. I'm going to ask you just to let it go. Begin that process of forgiving and forgetting. Because if you don't, it's going to ruin you. It costs a lot to forgive. But it's going to cost you more to not forgive. If you don't forgive, we become chained to our anger and our resentment. Don't forgive, and bit by bit, all the joy will get choked out of us. Don't forgive, and we're never able to trust again. Don't forgive, and the bitterness will crowd the compassion out of our hearts slowly, utterly, and completely. Believe that the Bible teaches us that the only power to forgive lies in this experience of being forgiven. The Bible teaches us a different way to live. Instead of living the way the world teaches, live the way God teaches. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God has forgiven us through Christ. The only thing that gives fallen, messed-up people the power to extend grace to anyone is the experience of being forgiven by God. There aren't any clever principles. There aren't any simple steps. It's just the love of God. God's love is the ultimate tool against the anger and the hostility, the hurt and the hatred that would otherwise destroy the human race. So we have to choose. What will be our choice? Is it going to be vengeance or mercy? Is it going to be hatred or grace? Will our choice today be bitterness or freedom? Because we are never so free as when we reach back into our past and forgive someone who caused us 